This is Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Black History Month is um, a commemoration, vocab word, for black activists, another vocab word, who took we celebrate black people that helped us change history. It reminds us to be strong, even in politics. Oy. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of relief. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, you should always celebrate it because you know the, the, the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. Black History Month 2021, and we're at Our Common Ground to celebrate. Welcome to our Our Common Ground Black History Special, the history of black political movements in America. This is a four-week lecture series on the history and interchange of black political movement and progress each Thursday, 8 p.m., with Dr. James L. Taylor. Sit back, nerd, and liberate. Thank you for joining us. And now, Our Common Ground is honored to present Professor, Author, Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco, Dr. James L. Taylor. to do to compensate for that is to repeat myself a lot. 
um, hoping that if you don't get it the first time, you get it the third time. Uh, and so I'm just thankful uh, to Ms. Graham for the opportunity to be here uh, and for you, the Our Common Ground audience. Um, I hope that you are ready to study and to explore some ideas that will make you a stronger person, um, that will make you a stronger um you know, member of the black community in terms of knowing what needs to be done and how we all have a part uh, in trying to improve uh, our condition. Um, I'm really excited about today's uh, lesson. Uh, we're on lesson number three and have one more after this. Um, we're looking at the, the diversities and just the range of ideologies and um, the factors that impact those ideologies and our movements uh, from class to economics to religion and spirituality, art, gender, and sexuality, and now how they have all sort of combined um, to factor into um, black history and black, and black movement history. There's a black movement history, uh, and then there's black history. Black movement history is a part of the history, uh, but it's, speci it's specifying that aspect, right, the movement aspect, right? We have an economic aspect. We have cultural aspects. We have religious aspects. We have economic aspects. Um, we have job, you know, job labor aspects. There are many different dimensions to black people, old and young, uh, wherever they are regionally. And I think what I hope to do is just give a general overview for us to sort of get a sense of what is possible for black America still. Like, is it all over? Like, do we have any more chances to actually move the needle and improve our life circumstances in the, in the vein that Ms. Graham and her comrades did um, in a powerful way so that we leave behind us a, a condition better than what we found? Um, the black uh, young people of the 60s who rose up, um, they left the world better than they found it. They left the country better than they found it. It was bad. They exposed it's ugly, but it still was better when black power was over than it was before black power, especially because black power became the psychology of black people. It, it became the most dominant influence in all black psychology. And I'm not talking about psychology like the field, like, you know, um, Freud. I'm saying negritude, attitude. Black attitude across the country. Um, in fact, Leopold Sinkor and others uh, referred to it as negritude in Africa, but it was influenced by black power. Um, and and I think that's what we really are engaging in when we're talking about black power is negritude, right? The sort of prioritizing of the uh, attributes and and elements and factors that African-American people, through their specific historical experience, bring to the table for all of humanity to benefit from. Black people in America are the most universal people on the planet. No group of whites have actually produced a, a universal um, agenda uh, outside of, say, the, universe, uh, the, uniform, uh, the universal declaration of rights around, you know, the... the um, the United Nations in World War II, but but in terms of just the notion of black being universal, black is the presence of all color. So everybody's in us when it's black. White, if I'm not mistaken, y'all tell me because I'm not good with art. Is the absence of all color? Is that is that right? Is blank blank 
Blanque. Isn't that what they say in Spanish? It's blank, blanque. So you empty. Black is the presence of all colors. So red, yellow, the rainbow color, um, uh, Irish, Italians, Jews, everybody can fit when black people open their mouths because black people, when they open their mouths, they're talking for everybody. And that is their nature. Because of their history, they have learned to be a vanguard for all groups. The Panthers were the vanguard for the black group, and so was like the Black Liberation Army and other groups were. But black people, in King's mind and in Du Bois's mind, have become, by force or by you know just by course, have become a revolutionary vanguard or a vanguard of this country. So the the, the pop culture in this country is dominated by only one group of black Americans. Anybody who's participating in pop culture is participating in black culture that dominates American culture. And we always have dominated American culture. From the moment we became slaves, the moment when they figured out the songs of the South and the Uncle Remus stories um, uh, and about Zip Coon and Uncle Tom and Uncle Remus, from that moment on, black culture dominated American culture. Uh, the, you know, minstrel was the first form of entertainment music in America in terms of performance. It was in blackface, minstrel. So, so think about that. Before you get Broadway, before you get the Grand Ole Opry in Memphis, you have blackface in Long Island and in New York or off-Broadway, right? And so I think it's really important for us to appreciate that the, uh, the, 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 the historical experiences, so I'm not essentializing black people as a race because they are black. I'm saying because the hell they've been through. That's what makes them what I'm saying they are, because they have been made into. And it wasn't made into by the racism. It was made into in response to the racism. Black people came up with their own remedies. For example, I learned, Ms. Graham, this week. And I pray I live long enough to keep telling this story because it needs to be told. I read an article, and you can find it online because I just found it randomly, about the old, one of the oldest founding fathers. It refers to as one of the neglected founding fathers, and it's talking about Prince uh, Hall, Prince Hall, um, from the Prince Hall Masons of Massachusetts in the 1700s. This is the same generation of blacks who first appealed to go back to Africa. They did not want integration. Their first uh, thought was to go back to Africa. But um, Prince Hall and the, and the Masons, Prince Hall was the first person to apply the Declaration of Independence to social justice. No white man in America applied, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal to people. They only applied it as a war declaration. In other words, the way the framers understood that passage was, we declare war. It does not mean all people are equal. Let me say that again. In the history of America, the word United States first shows up in the Declaration of Independence. And in the history of the Declaration of Independence, white people never intended for it to apply to society. It was only a one-time use one-time use, one-time use and be done with war declaration. So once the framers, or once the revolutionary generation in 1776 were finished with the Declaration of Independence that Hamilton, um, sorry, John Jay, Ben Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson wrote, they were done with it. It's a historical document, a historical declaration of war. It's a war of, you know, declaration of independence. 
that was the only purpose that the framers found in the Declaration of Independence, to declare independence, I'm saying. And I'm saying to you that a black man that was alive when that happened said, now we're not going to just waste that. That's too, much good pay- that's too much good preamble. That's too much good word for us to just be leaving on the cutting floor so they can just use it one time for war. We're going to use it for our war against racism for the rest of our time on this land. So Prince Hall picks up the Declaration of Independence. Do you hear me, black people? You are an America superior to, a, to the racist America. You are the only America that anybody can love. The America that black people want is a loving America. It's a dream. It's, it's welcoming all groups. There's not a group in America that black people didn't knock the door down for first. The people that can't stand us, half of them are Africans, Arabs. Asians, Muslims, and not a one of them groups knocked anything down for us. None of them. And we knocked down everything for them. So when you look at 1965 Naturalization and um, uh, uh, Origins Act, you find out that Ted Kennedy, because of his Irish background and being you know, stigmatized as Irish, felt because of the Civil Rights Movement's moment, that it would be an appropriate time to establish a law that allowed, that overturned the 70-plus-year-old policy in the Immigration and Naturalization Act from 17, um, 1791 to 1952. The law of the United States is that only a white person from a white country could be naturalized in America. I'll do the math again, 1791 to 1952. For 160 years, that's reparations right there. See, only white people can get it. See, we, whoever's talking reparations needs to figure out how, what they're talking about. Reparations is permanence. It's not a check. And, and that's what reparations is, is that for 160 years, only white people could be naturalized. That is white reparations. And when James Taylor talks about reparations, he sees reparations as whenever the government is on your side and has your back, period. FDIC. And white people have had 400 years of FDIC. And the next 400 years must be black people get FDIC. That's what reparations is. And anybody running their mouth about reparations, if they're not talking centuries, tell them to shut the hell up. And get off the TV. We need centuries of reparations. Anybody talking a check should be stopped from talking. They should be stopped immediately. Shut your mouth. You don't know enough about this topic to even talk about it if you're talking about a paycheck. Talking about cut the check. Tariq Nasheed is a clown. He's a clown. He's up there talking about cut the check, cut the check, cut the check. Just ignorant. Not even based on, you know, the struggles of our ancestors. And acknowledging that not only should there be a a payment, but there should be um, reconciliation and truth. See, what Nancy Pelosi is calling for is the wrong thing. Nancy Pelosi is calling for an investigation of Trump. They need to be calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission on white supremacy that lost its mind on January 6th, all the way back to the founding of the United States of America. That's that's what Nancy Pelosi should be doing, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's why I have zero faith in the Democrats, that they're going to do anything right. Again, it's way better than the Republicans. I'd rather Democrats be in charge than the Republicans. The Republicans are anti-black racists, and they're an anti-black racist party. And God knows we're going to kill it one day, because we're the ones that made it relevant anyway. 
Black people joined Lincoln. Black people got behind Lincoln. Black people were all kinds of energy in the Republican Party. And, and, and we were one of the reasons why this party pops up in 1856 and becomes permanent after that, because we attached ourselves to it, and we were permanent before it. We have been here 200 years before the first American political party was created. Black people were here for 200 years before the first American political party was created. Let me say that again, Kanye, since you're calling us slaves on the plantation and saying we're dependent, and Candace Owens, black people were here 200 years before the parties were born. So, so clearly, what we do is we take and we get involved in one of the parties and we engage in one of them, and then when it begins to treat us racistly, guess what we do? We jump out and we, we go over into the other party. And that's something no other group uh, can say. So, so, I, so I think it's really important for us to recognize that when you're talking about um, you know, these, de- these developments around African-American life and, and history and um, the factors that af- affect us and, and, and impact us, it's really important to recognize that as we move forward, um, there's a lot of, like Du Bois said, black people have a lot to teach America and, and to learn from America, but they have a lot to offer. And, and that's what I think it's been deprived of, and that's why we are still a new discovery as long as we've been here. We still continue to be a new source of democracy. See, when Prince Hall embraces the Declaration of Independence, when that basically says that black people had a totally different revolutionary perspective of the American founding than the framers. Prince Hall's attitude was everybody's equal and God created us equal. The framers' attitude was, hey, you know, we, we have a Declaration of Independence and we're breaking from England. It never occurred to them to apply the Declaration to the people. So they only used it as war material. But then a black man on the scene says, yeah, but this, this might work really well for our people. If we begin to advocate that all people are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that are among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we might be able to change these people. And I'm saying to you black people, if you're listening, and anybody else, that black people uniquely embrace the Declaration of Independence in ways that white people could never imagine it. They never understood it the way black people have understood it. White people can quote it, and they don't mean it. They say, we hold each other to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Isn't America great? Get back in the back of the bus. That's how they see it. They, 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 they have no problem with all of that. They, America's great. Um, it's only great for me. Get in the back of the bus. Hey, that's America. And that's how America has worked. It's like Words like democracy don't even exist in the Constitution. I just got finished teaching my class. There's nowhere in the Constitution where the word democracy shows up. Not one time, not one time is democracy in any founding document of America. Democracy ain't in the Constitution. Democracy is not in state law. Democracy is not in state constitutions. Democracy is in black people. That's where democracy comes from. Black people are America's democracy. And the reason why it's not in paper but it's alive and vibrant is because we are the arbiters of it. We are the carriers of it. And we don't need no written law to, to continue to be, um, for, for it to stay alive, right? You've heard in the Bible where things are written in our hearts, right? Black people got these songs. Black people got these words written in their hearts. They don't need no help. And what I'm saying to you is, that it's a unique black perspective to apply the Declaration of Independence to social justice. It is a white perspective 
to apply the, just the Declaration of Independence to war. And since we don't use it for war calls and cries anymore, and it was a one-time use for then, for the white man, Ms. Graham, it really only had that one-time use in 1776, aimed at King George III and the British Parliament. After that, these white folk ain't have no use for it. It was going to be like the Magna Carta or some other important but historically um, museumed uh, document. But a black man in Massachusetts wiped it off and looked at the preamble and said, before he created the Masons, Prince Hall said, we're going to apply this to people. And now everybody in the world and America applies the preamble to the Declaration of Independence to people and, and, and white women, gays, all of them benefiting from the fact that it was a black man that made the Declaration of Independence mean more than war, mean more than war. And that's the difference. He made it mean more than war. And that's a beautiful black thing. Is when, they, when, a, when white men saw those words, they said kill. When black men, men saw those words, they said let's live. And there's a fundamentally different orientation in America between the African and the European that's here. The African loves. He don't love himself like he should, but the African loves. The African is still deeply the main source of spirituality on the land of America. The African is the one who, who yells the name of Jesus and Muhammad louder than anybody. There is no larger Christian group in America than black Americans outside of white people in, in, in terms of ethnic groups. And there is no larger group of Muslims in America than black Americans from the Nation of Islam who uh, embraced the Muslim Mo um, Mosque Incorporated and uh, 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 um, Wallace D. Muhammad's teachings in, 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 in Sunni Islam that eventually becomes the mainstream. So, so that two million Muslims, many who evolved out of the nation and went into uh, the, uh, the Ummah uh, in the Sunni Islam, traditional, following Malcolm and Wallace Muhammad, that's, that's where most Muslims are. So there are two million Muslims in America who are black. There are, eight million American, there are eight million Muslims in America from the rest of the world. So two million of ours, and then the rest of the planet make up the other six. So the majority of Muslims in America are black American Negroes. So, 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 so we are the source of its spiritual culture. Look at that. that. You see that right there? Who sings Jesus' name like us other than Latinos? And I'm talking about, you know, non-black Latinos. They sing it, so I'm not taking that from them. They sing deeply with passion, right? But the evangelical, when they start singing it, they, they might as well say the N-word every other word. Oh, how I love Jesus, N-word. Oh, how I love Jesus, N-word. Oh, how I love Jesus, N-word. Because he first loved me and didn't love you, N-word. Because that's their religion. That's the white man's religion in America today. It's a Negro-hating Christianity. And you saw it, and you better not forgive it. Don't you ever forgive them. These are supposed to be God's people. They're supposed to be the salt of the earth. They're supposed to be the city on the hill. They're not supposed to allow themselves to get caught up following Beelzebub when Beelzebub shows up to lead them. They're supposed to be the chosen who can see the devil when he shows up, and they're supposed to warn the world around them, this is the devil. But what do white Christians do in America? White Christians. Jerry Farwell's son watching his wife have sex with a young man. Think about that, y'all. And we, and because of how despicable and ungodly Trump is, he covered him. Because of all Trump's ungodliness, we hardly recognize the fact that the number one Christian in America is a white man named Jerry Falwell, who has spent the last few years enriching himself and his, I don't know, what do you call that, 
uh, I'm going to be respectful because it's Miss Graham's show. There's a word for it. I'm just not going to use it. But, uh, but for him, doing what he did, you know, vicariously sitting around watching his wife with other men, what kind of evil is that? What kind of sickness, what kind of moral depravity? You preach Jesus and you're depraved inside. These people with Jesus still lynched. With Jesus still created the clan. With Jesus still put us in the back of the bus. With Jesus still put us in chains. Jesus has made no difference in white people's lives or in their history. They've had them all along when they were abusing us. They still got them. Half them people that were taken over the Capitol had their Bibles open. They stopped to pray. They believed they were doing God's work on January 6th. And their work is against black people. That's the sickness. Here we are singing the name of Jesus, singing the name of Muhammad, singing the name of Abraham or Moses. And we're singing it like even the original Christians from the first century don't. In other words, Jesus can't go in the Middle East and find no Christians. See, y'all not really hearing me. Y'all don't hear me. But if you listen to me, I'm trying to show you some stuff that's right in front of you that you should have known a long time ago. And, and, and that's the reality, that when you look at, um, the, the, you know, the, the, these realities we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with a people where Jesus, if he came back to the earth today, he'd have to go to Compton or Harlem or, 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 or Georgia, you know, or, 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 or Jackson, Mississippi, to find himself elevated. But if he went over to Palestine... If Jesus went to Palestine today, he would not find any faith there. He'd find religious division and fighting around from people who eat halal and people who eat kosher, which is the same damn thing. They're the same people. They really are Semitic. They're all the same, running around because of their books, you know, distinguishing them. But if Jesus came back today, he would not recognize the Middle East and he would not find many Christians over there, and that's where the religion started. And if he looked around the earth, he might find stale, milk toast, unloving, ceremonial religion. But if he want to find somebody dancing and shouting and singing his name and, and being slain in the spirit and being uh, walking in the spirit and... Um, connecting with the people and their struggles and their pains coming out as emotion and as religious worship. Do you understand? Y'all not listening to me, but I'm trying to tell you something nobody else is telling you. I'm trying to tell you God can't find no faith elsewhere on the earth like he can amongst black America. In terms of those people who still overtly say, we embrace the cross. White people do ceremoniously. They have the Catholic church. I work at a Catholic university. Right? They, they have that. We, but we know what happened with the Catholic Church, how it's lost credibility. It hasn't had credibility for about 25 years since we know. And, in fact, the last 15 years with all the scandals, who, who's listening to them outside of themselves? The evangelicals just became Trumpian, so we can't listen to them. Nobody who preaches Jesus to me from the evangelical churches can preach to anybody black. I think black people who aren't even Christians are more spiritual than the white Christian because the white Christian is a racist. They are not neutral. In other words, in the American, it's possible to be white and Christian and not be racist. I, I want to make that clear. There are plenty of good white people in America who are not Christian, I mean, and who are Christian. 
But what I'm talking about is the unique combination of racism, Southern racism, and Protestantism, and it form of evangelical Christianity is specifically anti-black. Jerry Falwell created the moral majority, and the white backlash, the moral majority, people try to pretend was a reaction to Roe v. Wade and women's rights and women's reproductive rights. But, Ms. Graham, it turns out that, that the backlash of, of, of the religious right the evangelical backlash of the moral majority, beginning with Jerry Falwell, later Ralph Reed in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, had to do with race and the civil rights movement. Jerry Falwell hated Martin Luther King. Jerry Falwell, I remember the pig. Jerry Falwell used to be so self-righteous. Y'all remember him, old fat, you know, overweight man, meaning he was eating too much, but preaching to everybody else about their sins. But he's sitting up there all gluttonous and self-righteous, always, you know, I could not, I, he was, I cannot stand a self-righteous white man. They walk around thinking they're righteous in the name of Jesus or Muhammad. And this man was that type. And yet his whole motivation was to be the anti-Martin Luther King. When, when the evangelicals attached themselves to the Republican Party in 64, 65, Barry Goldwater, the racist that King said he was, Barry Goldwater said that Jerry Falwell was a jackass, those are his words, and that Jerry Falwell, that it was a terrible thing that the, the evangelical movement was attaching itself to the Republican Party. Because Goldwater said, in the conscience of a conservative, that if... If the evangelicals become a part of the Republican Party, I, Goldwater, will be seen as a liberal or moderate in the future. Now, look, look at that. That devil 50 years ago predicted that because Christianity was marrying itself to politics in the Republican Party, in the end, it was going to become so extreme that the extremists who said famously in 1964 at the Cow Palace here in San Francisco, with Mitt Romney's daddy walking out on them, the extremism in the in defense of liberty is no vice. And moderation in the interest of justice is no virtue. Those are the famous words of Barry Goldwater that launches the conservative movement, not Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater in San Francisco, not, um, you know, Senator Eastland or, you know, or J Governor Wallace in Alabama. The, the conservative movement was born in San Francisco when Barry Goldwater makes those comments about extremism. And so when you think about us, what I'm trying to say to you is, just like I'm saying Jesus can't find too many other Christians still praising him the way black people do, he can't even find it where the religion was started. So if Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, he can't find nobody doing him like the people are in the Baptist church or in the Pentecostal church. He ain't going to find nobody in the Middle East passing out in the spirit slain. But I bet you if he came here in America, Jesus would find, Jesus' mind would be blown if he saw the rest of the world and then came to black America and said, and sat in the front seat of, of, um, of uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, Abyssinia Baptist Church or, or, or West Angeles Church of God in Christ down there on Crenshaw. You know, if, if, if he sat at Jeremiah Wright's church in Chicago, Jesus would be amazed. And that's what I'm trying to say about black people. We are the good. We are the salt of this earth. And tragically, because of our physical conditions and circumstances, we end up not giving each other the best of our salt. So we treat others good. We love Palestine. We love Arabs. We love Muslims. We love the gays. We love transgender. We love uh, animals. We love the environment. But then we'll pick up a 9 millimeter and kill each other quick. So there's a sickness in it, too. 
Like we have a deep love and universalism for others, but we have a deep sickness toward ourselves. Um, you know, there's something about us where we tend to dismiss each other more easily and we'll engage each other in violence more easily. And I think we have got to learn as a black people, we got to come up with some, de- uh, what's the word, de-escalation campaigns. We have got to, we always have had them. Farrakhan in 85 went throughout L.A. saying stop the killing. You know, Farrakhan did the stop the, stop the killing campaign. We need to keep those kinds of local campaigns going to encourage people um, because uh, it's very important that we do. And so I think um, at this point, Ms. Graham, we might um, allow, the crowd, uh, allow the audience to, uh, to get a glass of water and take a break, um, and, um, and uh, we'll come back uh, if, if Ms. Graham is ready. Uh, we'll come back on the other side of the break, and we will pick up uh, more and talk more about um, the, po- the particular ways that black people right now are saving the world on the planet Earth from the belly of the beast. It's not because we're so powerful and great, but it's because God strategically has us here in America where, as, a, as a John Singleton said in his movie, um, Higher Learning, in, in, through, the, through the Ice Cube character, we, we're behind enemy lines, dog. So we're behind enemy lines. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Hi, this is Janice Graham. Thank you for joining us on our Our Common Ground 2021 Black History Special, A History of Black Political Movements in America with Dr. James Taylor. We hope that you are learning and liberating. I'd like to invite you to a very special Black History moment tomorrow night, February 19th, Friday. I will be hosting a broadcast to honor the legacy of Jimmy Doc Horn of Palm Beach County, a black pioneer in tennis who was also for more than 10 years my personal tennis coach. We're going to be talking with his son, who you may know, a very famous rhythm and blues vocalist, Bohorn, and many of the people in the community who are supporting the Jimmy Doc Horn Tennis Center at Gaines Park in West Palm Beach. I hope you'll join us. Jimmy Horn was one of the most prolific change makers in the segregation era in sports, among many who are not noted but made a difference in black history. I hope you'll join us. It will be very special on this Black History Month. 7.30 here at Our Common Ground on Friday, February 19th. 
It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. And what we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this country. Nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. Drilling down, just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show. He's back. The Alpha Show. August 20th. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. Electoral outcome that we had. Now, you've got to keep in mind, I'm a political scientist. So my, my thing is politics. If you, if you don't like the idea of me talking about parties, because I know a lot of black folk are quick to say, well, the Democrats are awful. The Democrats ain't no better. What about those Democrats, especially black men? I, I, I get you, brother. I'm with you. I'm already there. But, but we're talking about politics. Now, the subject is something different, like we shouldn't be a part of the Democratic Party, then I'll talk about that. But what I'm talking about in the meantime is that black people have made political choices in their wisdom, and I think it's a deep wisdom. Um, again, there's not another group that even comes close to black people's intelligence when it comes to voting in, in and out of parties. Black people belonged to one party in America for 100 years when it became too racist and FDR made some gestures with the New Deal. They, t- they took them another 30 years, and by 1964, they had completely broken from their party after 100 years of, of belonging to the party of Lincoln. And then they chased the racists out. They, 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 Black history matters. You just don't want to miss the Our Common Ground 2021 Black History Special. The history of black political movements in America with Dr. James L. Taylor. 
Thursdays, 8 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, the history of black political movements in America. Dr. Taylor brings fire to our history. Black History Matters, this lecture series, opens up the power of black political history. Welcome back. Hi, this is Janice Graham asking you to join us each Saturday, 10 p.m. at Our Common Ground, Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. Coming up on this Saturday, do we accomplish much in celebrating Black History Month each year? I'm wondering, and I'm asking, are you making a difference? Are you intentionally and consciously creating new black history? Are you making black history? I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you right here in the Black Truth Sanctuary at Our Common Ground. Saturdays live and call in 10 p.m. Thank you for joining us in this first installment of a four-part lecture, The History of Black Political Movements in America. I'm Janice Graham, and we appreciate and are grateful for the brilliance and genius of Dr. James Taylor, who shares his knowledge, his passion, and his keen analysis and insight through years of study experience and academic leadership. Join us for the remaining three parts of this lecture series. Each Thursday, February 11th, 18th, and 25th, 8 p.m., here at Our Common Ground, where for 34 years we have been the university on the air. Join us on Saturday night coming up, February 6th, on Our Welcome back. So I want to uh, ask us to uh, sort of decompress 
And a good colleague of mine in San Francisco at the law school, her name is Rhonda McGee. Uh, she's a good friend of uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, she, she's a leading scholar out of Virginia, even though she's in San Francisco. She's born and raised in Virginia, Rhonda McGee. She's a practitioner of mindfulness. Even as a brilliant law scholar, she believes in the application of meditation, breathing, prayer, in the middle of your chaos, in the middle of your day, in the middle of your conversation, just stop and become present and sort of deliberate and intentional with everything going on around you, sort of, you know, be super, you know, clued in around you. And I think we need a lot of mindfulness, just one, so we can stay healthy. Um, we know the COVID is having a certain effect. And just today, we got more de- depressing news about being black in America in the midst of it, where they say that uh, COVID has taken off one year of life expectancy of average whites, two to three years off of Latinos, and three years off of black people's lives in, in some measurement. I don't know exactly how they measured it, but that's what they reported, suggesting that, you know, in the last 12 months, three years of your life just got cut off. Since, since last March, and, um, and that's really tragic. And, and yet it, there's also a new study that shows that white opinion is in the majority says that they are willing to um, die and suffer at this, in this system rather than allow blacks to uh, have equality with them. So that's the suicidal sick racism we're dealing with. These people don't want us to ever get uh, the dream that King sang. They pretend that they're down for the dream, but when we get, you know, if, if we start activating and mobilizing for the dream, it actually has the opposite effect, where um, our advances uh, actually spawn and initiate um, predictable white backlash. Uh, that, that's pretty much the nature of black politics is black movement, white backlash, black movement, white backlash, black movement, white backlash, black movement, white backlash. From Reconstruction, white backlash, Jackie Robinson, white backlash, uh, uh, Jack Johnson before that, white backlash, Joe Lewis, white backlash, Muhammad Ali, white backlash, right, uh, Martin King, Ronald Reagan is the backlash, um, uh, busing, uh, you had 76 with the white uh, Irish people who just got here, stabbed the black man with the, with the flag in Boston, right, white backlash, um, black President Obama, Donald Trump backlash, MAGA backlash, right, January 6th backlash. White people have lost the right to claim to be the, the leaders of this land. If this used to be a white man's land, They've decided that it's not worth saving because the non-whites are catching up. And this is a sickness. This is not spiritual. Black people, if they saw other people catching up to them, they might be irritated about it in terms of competition, but they wouldn't hate the people because they were competitive. And they wouldn't hate them because they were around. But that's the norm for most whites. Not all, but most. And, and people like King and Malcolm and Muhammad Ali, you watch their footage, you see them constantly trying to balance, not dismissing all whites for the racists. And I want to have that balance, too. But at some point, if only the bad cops are around, who cares that there are good cops? If they're only racist whites getting the, the, the stage and acting out, does it really matter to black people that there are good white people out there if MAGA has taken over the Capitol? Maybe, I guess they could have joined in and made it worse. I guess you could argue it that way. But, but generally speaking, um, we, we see 
an, an angst and a, a lacking, a deficiency. And it's not simply economic and material. It's something more. And that's why I keep harping on those spiritual qualities, because that's what we have. We have our culture. That's our weapon. That's our nuclear bomb. Harold Cruz, Harold Cruz was, was clear in the, the Crisis of the Negro Intellectual and the book of Rebellion versus, or Revolution that black people's culture is the only, really wep, only real weapon they have against white people. And once we understand that and use it as our ancestors did for our uplift, the singing, the dancing, the praying, the preaching, the church was never just about salvation. The church was a trickster. The church was a trickster. Like Father Divine was a trickster. Like Daddy Grace was a trickster. They pretended to be really into these cults that they were leading where they were calling themselves God, like Elijah Muhammad and Master Fraud Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. But what they were doing was getting First Amendment protection so they could do what they want. And once they got the protection of religion under the First Amendment, they basically created black power organizations without, and you didn't see them as black power organizations because you're too blind on the religion. Ignore Elijah Muhammad's religion. Ignore Oh, Daddy Grace's religion, ignore Father Divine's religion, and you got three black men leading 50,000 black people who are independent of welfare, independent of, of the public door, independent of dependency, people who have their own businesses. Father Divine had a woman called, I think, Proud uh, Sister Mary, um, and she was his Malcolm X, who he cleaned up off the streets and, um, and made into a millionaire. There was a woman that followed Father Divine that was a prostitute in Harlem. She was a low-life woman, uh, like Malcolm says he was, and then Father Divine cleaned her up. She changed her life and became the number one disciple of Father Divine, and then she turned against him again, and he put her back out in the streets homeless, and then he brought her back into being a millionaire. And that's similar to Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad's story, at least the first round, where Malcolm and Elijah fall apart. Father Divine had that first. There was a black woman cult leader. This is coming out in my next book on People's Temple, so you'll be able to read it. But there was a black woman cult leader. Again, the cults were just fronts. They were trickster event. They were trickster organizations. They were pretending to be really into the religion that they preached about. So all the black Christians were always angry at the nation of Islam and always angry at Father Divine and Daddy Grace and Reverend Ike and saying, oh, y'all are devils. Y'all are all into the money. But these were black power organizations before black power was a black power thing. They were doing black power when the students were yelling black power, and guess where black power came out of? Black power comes out of Garveyism, but Garveyism comes out of the same thing that the Nation of Islam comes out of. And, and so when you say black power, that's Garveyism. And when you say black power, the Nation of Islam is the immediate organizational um, sponsor of that reality. So that even when black power is uttered in 1966 in Mississippi by Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks, be clear that power they're talking about is not religious power, it's secular power. And that's the clarity that black power gave to black history. Up to this point, you always saw the religion in front of it, and therefore you couldn't see the power. You saw Father Divine, you saw Daddy Grace, you saw Reverend Ike, you saw Elijah Muhammad, you saw Marcus Garvey. But if you remove the religion you'll see that Elijah Muhammad has had the most successful organization of black people since, the, you know, it's, it's the, the NACP was not made by blacks. It, it eventually was taken over, but it wasn't made by blacks. The, and the Nation of Islam was a black-made organization, 
And when it dies, a part of black America will die. You hear me, Ms. Graham? We, we might take it for granted now, but when the nation of Islam dies, if it dies, then we die in a real deep way because that is a part of that deep history. And as long as it's around, as long as the five percenters, the nation of Islam, uh, the peace mission is still around in Philadelphia, but it's got like eight people left. Um, Daddy Grace's movement is dead, but they still got people in D.C. But my point is, in terms of a large-scale presence, if the nation of Islam were to die with Farrakhan, I'm saying to you, Ms. Graham, I think the, 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 the butterfly effect of it would be way deeper than we realize because it's such an integral part to what our history was at that time. You know, the, the, the UNIA has come and gone. Um, Daddy Grace's movement has come and gone. Timothy Noble Drew Ali's Morris Science Temple is still here. That's another one. It's, it's a minority one that most of us have never engaged with or had any connection to, um, but we know it, it's around. But my point is, the Morris Science Temple, Garveyism, UNIA, the Nation of Islam, all of that came out of the same historical moment, 19, in between World War I and World War II. And I'm saying to you, out of all of that, guess what's still standing? The Morris Science Temple of Timothy Drew Ali and the Nation of Islam. And these are both ours, and they both reflect our migration from cities to the Midwest and to the northern cities. And they are basically like Michael Jackson was. Michael Jackson was, 20, Michael Jackson was 50 years of your black life. If you live 50 years or more, Michael Jackson was a part of every decade of your life. When you were young, he was a part of your young, youth. When you were a teen, he was a part of your teen. When you were in your 20s, you, he was in your 20s. When he was singing uh, rock with you in your late 20s, he, he, you know what I'm saying? So on and on. You can do a, a, almost a chronology of, of our lives, those of us who are 50 years old or older, by our relationship to Michael Jackson and how long he lived across that past 50 years. Because Michael comes out of Gary, Michael is deeply connected to our migration and his family as a black Gary, Indiana, migrated black working class family that got lucky with music like many others did at that time in Ohio and D.C. and other places. But the point is that with, with um, the emergence of Michael Jackson, he is, um, a, he is a way of you measuring your history. And I'm saying that as well by these movements like black power movements. I'm saying to you that these black power, these cults, these black church organizations they were actually proof of black secular power. In the, and and it was a trick, the trickster part of it is everybody really was paying attention and, and distracted, focusing on Father Divine calling themselves God, and they ignored the fact that Father Divine, doing that, was able to get away with it and buy a house right next to FDR. He bought a house right next to the FDR up in a place called Crumb with a K elbow, Crumb elbow. Right up in Bronx, Father Divine bought about a hundred houses up in uh, uh, New Rochelle, Rochester, Bronx. Up in up in, he bought the second oldest house in America. I'm just giving you an example. Here you have a man who called himself God and never took up a church collection one time and pimped his people. Father Divine did not pimp his people. He did not take up a collection in 50 years. He practiced Booker Washington's economic program and the black. People with Father Divine, 51 of them came together, and they created an economic program, and they operated it, and it produced $20 million during the Great Depression, Ms. Graham. Y'all ain't hearing me. These 51 black people behind this farce and behind this trick that Father Divine is God were actually doing black power. 50 black people in 1919 in Sayville, Long Island, at the very time when they uh, the clan there burned a cross. Father Divine's people were working in all the white people's houses, and they were accepted. And that was seen as a kind of bed, uh, uh, Daniel, uh, uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace kind of situation where it was shocking that Father Divine's people had not been harmed by the Klan in 1919. 1919 was the most violent year in America in terms of race relations. So this trickster man, he's running around calling himself God. He and 50 black people, mostly black women, combine their money together, and they basically multiply that money and then quite, you know, continue to multiply that money. And Father Divine is worth 20 or $30 million when everybody else in America is broke, poor, abject. What was Father Divine doing? He was practicing Booker Washington's philosophy of economics, you know, black economics and black economic cooperatives. Father Divine created you know, cooperatives, people living in communal housing, not having sex. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was a spiritual thing. And, again, I'm going into this detail to try to help you see something that you cannot see if you are paying attention to Father Divine's religion. And I'm trying to get you to put the religion of any of these men aside, and you will actually see their black power. See, without the God complex, Father Divine is the baddest man in America. He's Martin Luther King before King is King. The presence in Father Divine and King is Father Divine had a God complex. Martin Luther King believed in God outside of himself. That's the basic difference. Martin Luther King comes in the mode of Father Divine. And Father Divine was the first one to oppose the Nazis. So when, when, a black, when America stood up, Prescott Bush, uh, Coco Chanel, y'all running around with that crap on, Coco Chanel and, um, and Prescott Bush, uh, uh, half of America's whites. They had 25,000 white people met at this Madison Square Garden celebrating Hitler and the Nazis. And black, America's, uh, black America, Father Divine stands up and says, this is wrong. And, um, and so my point to you is, black people's reserve, our culture is so powerful that now that America's in trouble, we're in trouble too. We're in trouble, too, and yet we still have a reserve. We aren't desperate. We're in trouble, but we're not desperate. They are in trouble, and they don't have a plan B. They don't have a spiritual culture. They only have a racist culture. That's why what they're expressing now is racist culture. The only thing an Italian and a Jew and an Irish and a German um, and a, a Pole and a, a Welsh, a Welsh, and uh, uh, somebody from you know somebody from uh, from Wales, somebody from Canada. Only thing they have in common is race. Otherwise, there were no white people in Europe. None of the people that we call white were white. They were all Italian, Jewish, and no African was black. Right? They were Kosa Zulu. Right? So the white people who call themselves white in America have created this category so that they can be brothers and sisters in ways that they never could be in Europe. A Jew or an Irish person couldn't be brother or sister to anything else in Europe until they came to America and blended in and sold out and gave up Irishness except for St. Patty's Day and gave up Jewishness except for Shabbat on Fridays. And as a consequence, um, you end up with this uh, dynamic in our country. So when we think about black people and our, our role and our development, I think it's important to understand that uh, the, the, the 1619 Project is really um, about what, I'm, what I was saying earlier about black Christianity in America compared to Christianity on the earth or black Islam in America compared to Islam anywhere, is that black people, if, again, you cannot, you cannot find the word democracy in anything that matters in law in America. 
I'm trying to tell us that we are the reason why democracy is a word in America, period. It does not exist in the Constitution. It does not exist in the Declaration of Independence. It does not exist in state constitutions and laws. Nobody in America says, you know, in other words, democracy became what we made it. Our social movements, along with labor movements, along with the women's suffrage movement, along with, you know, the, you know, other group movements that have happened, we've democratized America, and we have made democracy a spiritual force. See, this is what I mean, Ms. Graham, when I say it's spiritual. You can't find democracy anywhere in America's system, but it's alive. That's spiritual. It's not in the Constitution. But it's alive. It's not in the Declaration, but it's alive. It's not in the 50 state constitutions, but it's alive. It's not in the city constitutions, but it's alive. Why? Because black people, when Prince Hall picked up that document and said, this applies to us, we have been the, 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 the children of democracy in America. And that's what the 1619 Project is trying to convey, that democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written, as uh, Sister uh, Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones had written, she says black Americans have fought to make them true. And that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I've been saying on all of the shows. I'm not trying to be egocentric and ethnocentric and say black people are the best people uh, out of everybody, although I know black people are something beautiful. I know that. And when I die, the thing I'm going to miss the most is black people. That's, that's what I'm going to miss. I don't know if y'all ever heard anybody say that before, but when I leave this earth, however soon it is, the thing I'm going to miss is just being black. I love it. I, I'm glad I got put on the underdog side. I have little respect for the, the, the dominant group. I don't respect them. I think they're a bunch of people like Trump. They were just born white, and they had already robbed everybody, and so they just kept being born white to inherit what, everybody, what their ancestors robbed. So when you're white, you're running around here thinking you're better than anybody. You just got born to your family, and your family was criminal, and your family stole the land, and your family raped the women, and your family uh, stole the labor. Of black people, so that from the civil, from the American Revolution to the Civil War is 90 years. That 90 years is the key point, Miss Graham, for us to emphasize as black people between the two events: World Revolution, Civil War, 1776, um, um, 1860, 1861. In between that 90 years is when black Slave labor is making America richer than the rest of the planet. So instead of us just thinking in the abstract, oh, yeah, black people built this country, I'm trying to give you the time period that you can have more specificity. Here on our common ground, you can get specificity. And the specificity is that uh, black people, um, you know, had this very specific um, uh, stage of, of, their, of, their, of their development. So I think it's important to recognize from Prince Hall, to the Declaration of Independence, I said on the show recently, if you look throughout the history of black people in terms of their writings and manifestos, they always emphasize the Declaration of Independence. Frederick Douglass's 5th of July speech, what to the Negro is your 4th of July? That's him destroying it. That's him destroying it. He basically, like, like Prince Hall, he's, in other words, Frederick Douglass's 4th of July speech that condemns the white version of the 4th of July is in the Prince Hall tradition. We have our way of understanding the Declaration of Independence. You have yours. And, Ms. Graham, I've been trying to say, I, I'm having a hard time getting it out, but I keep trying to say we are the better alternative of how to be America in America compared to the white people. And what I mean by that is the white people want to uh, see the Declaration of Independence as war. But the black orientation was, how, do, how can we apply 
this idea to all people. And so now nobody knows this, or very few people know that it was black people who applied the Declaration to society first. It was white men who only saw it as a law manifesto. But in a black man named Prince Hall, the founder of black Freemasonry uh, in America, in Boston, at the Revolution, he is a founding father. There were black founding fathers. And he also believed in going back to Africa. And that's why Prince Hall is important. Malcolm X, David Walker, Jeremiah Wright, the women as well, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Queen Audley, Mother Moore, Septima Clark, Daisy Bates, these women were revolutionary lionesses in their hearts. They were they would eat you to they would destroy you in terms of you being an obstructionist to black people. These women trained a little boy named Martin Luther King. Septima Clark, I think it was, or Daisy Bates took King to the uh, Highlander Folk, uh, Folk School in uh, in Maryland. I mean, I'm sorry, in Tennessee, when King was a very young guy, these women had already been trained in these tactics. So I'm trying to get you to understand. Black people, when we were brought here as slaves, we were not expected to survive. And lucky for them, we did. Because if we were not here, America would be dead already right now because white America ain't got nothing left to offer it but negativity, violence, racism, not love. Their culture is not preaching love. Our culture preaches love. Our, our culture, you, I mean, it, it gets on most black people nerve, but, but black folk are just too quick to accept everybody else. We run around here, look at Mark Lamont Hill. Mark Lamont Hill has gone off on the deep end. He got fired from CNN. I'm not getting fired from CNN defending the Palestinians. Ain't no damn Palestinians defending me. And yet, and yet that bothers you. Because, ooh, black people, we're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be for everybody. So we figure, because we got treated like crap by, by, by the white man, that we're supposed to just co-sign with anything and everybody. Well, I know there's a couple of Palestinian rap groups that, you know, have built rap. <clears throat> like, uh, uh, there's one group that sounds just like Public Enemy. But my point is this. It's not that I don't support the Palestinians. I do. And I, I support the Palestinians against Israel. My problem is that we would be stupid enough to make that important to us enough to affect how we do in politics here, three, you know, 8,000 miles in America. So that in the 60s, we took a, pro, a pro-Palestinian position at Gary and a pro-Palestinian position in the conventions, and it was important at that time because they were looking at geopolitical things. They were looking at Pan-Africanism. They're looking at, you know, Ben Bella. They're looking at Nasser. They're looking at, you know, the Middle East and, and, and Africa, you know. But I think strategically, Ms. Grant, part of the problem is it became distractive from what we needed to be focusing on. So in the 60s, we end up losing our relationship with the Jewish group in America, who had been one of our major allies in the civil rights movement, right, uh, when black power hits. But it's also because we take a policy position at the conventions, taking a pro-Palestine position. Now, again, I am pro-Palestine. My problem is... Was that the right time and right place and right issue to raise an issue when we're dealing with black American issues? Why would we let our philosophical commitment to social justice for all allow us to undermine our own politics? See, we can be philosophically committed to social justice for all, but on the nitty-gritty of politics is give and take and compromise. 
And so what we did was we said, absolutely, we're taking a pro-Palestine uh, position against Israel, and then we alienated the main white people we had in America as allies for something that didn't even really pertain to us. The, the Palestinian condition ain't got a damn thing to do with black America unless you twist and contort and, and, and manipulate and bend and break it to make it fit your idea. But it ain't got a damn thing to do with it. And you want to talk about oppressions and colonialisms and racisms and gentrifications? Okay, but that ain't got nothing to do with black people. The, the predicament of the Palestinians ain't got nothing to do with the, the predicament of black America. And my point is, not that I don't support the Palestinians, my point is we should not have spent any political capital on it. And we could still be for it. And we still could support the Palestinians. But what did taking a Palestinian position do for us? Nothing. It made people feel better. People felt like they stuck to their morals and their principles, like they're still in high school and childish. Like, ooh, I used to be a nationalist when I was 19, so at 49, I'm still a nationalist. Well, if you are, 19, if you are a nationalist at 19, and you're a nationalist at 49, and you're still holding to the same rubric of what is and what is not, then maybe your idea and your ideology kept you from ever maturing beyond 19. If it's socialism, Trotskyism, conservatism, whatever it is, if you're still doing at your 50s what you believed in your 20s, then you need to grow up. Like these racists in Washington, D.C., they're running around, they're conservative, they're conservative in Texas. Right now, Texas is in trouble. And what's hurting Texas is that these childish white men, like Ted Cruz and the governor and lieutenant governor and the stupid mayor that quit, they are all sticking to a philosophical, abstract idea of conservatism. When the water rises and the blood starts flowing and the earth starts shaking, all that immaturity to me, whatever I think philosophically, Ms. Graham, should go out the window when it comes to rescuing the people. And the conservative in, in, in Texas, they're sitting around doing nothing because in the abstract, they think – you know, big, you know, big government is bad, and now people are dying, and they're sticking to their childish 19-year-old position rather than saying, well, I believe that at 19. Look, people are dying in Texas because of the, you know, the condition. Let me get down there and help people on a practical level. And that's my point is that we have got to, um, uh, as a people, recognize that, um, that we've done a great deal of democratizing America. We've democratized it more than any single group. No group, not the Native Americans not labor unions, not the white left, the old one or the new one. Ms. Graham, we literally are a blessing to this land. If it wasn't for us, America could be more dictatorial. And if it wasn't for us, America would be a lot less loving, a lot less happy, a lot less spiritual, a lot less, and it would, be a lot, it would have a lot less flavor. It would be like Canada, you know, all right, I guess. And, and you know, Canada's pretty milquetoast, Um and except to the extent that you got the First Nations up there giving it some flavor or some African, uh, like, you know, some of the Jamaicans that went there uh, and immigrated there, you know, earlier. But we have to recognize that um, when, when, when Prince Hall talked about back to Africa, he, he, he advocated back to Africa. He advocated creating um, the, 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 Mason, the, the, the Masonic temples. And he also advocated applying the Declaration of Independence. And I hope you've never heard this before today. And I hope that you really take it to heart. And I hope that you will actually follow through. There's an article online with a picture of Prince Hall, so you can Google it. This is an article I read just the other day, just in general. It's just, in the, it's just out there. So Google the Black Founding Father, Prince Hall, 
and you'll see the article with a sketch of him with an afro and a dark. It doesn't show his eyes. It just shows an artist's sketch. And the, the details of that article break down how he single-handedly was the person who had the bright idea that the Declaration of Independence applies to society and not just to war. And that, my Miss Graham, is the best thing I can do right there. That's the best I can. I probably can ever say to you, as long as we know each other, what I just said is that Prince Hall put black, put America on the path for democracy by applying the preamble of the Declaration of Independence to the society instead of to the military and to an act of war. And that, and the reason why I think it's so important as a gift to give to everyone is if you take that, then you understand when I say that there's a black way of America, and there's a white way or a racist way. There's a racist way of America, and there's a black way of America. The non-racist way is the black way. The racist way is the white way. And last week, I felt like America is on the verge of ending because in 1820, when the, when the Missouri Compromise was passed, Je Thomas Jefferson and his enemy, John Adams, who both died on July 4th, 1858, on the same day, exactly 50 years to the day of the signing of the uh, 1830 uh, Missouri Compromise line that divided America half slave and half free. And Abraham Lincoln comes along 30 years later and says no nation can, uh, divided itself can stand. You can't be half slave and half free. Jefferson said in the 1830s, and so did Adams, that when the Missouri Compromise line was signed by Congress and passed, America was over. And it's right. It goes back to what I said earlier about America dying and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln emerges as the second George Washington because Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War killed the American Revolution. And, and so what we're, what we're talking about is that, um, you know, uh, the, the, the very idea of, you know, sort of developing a perspective around, you know, um, the Declaration of Independence I'm trying to give the gift to us as a black people to understand that without us, the Declaration of Independence would not even mean what it means. It wouldn't even have an application to humans or to our society. We've all been assumed that it was the white folk that out of their goodness or out of their contradiction that they wrote that preamble, and certainly they did, um, uh, just three men, not white people, three men, right? And, um, and, 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 and yet we miss that they never intended for it to apply to anybody except King George III. And the gift we are giving you tonight is forever for you to understand that it was black people in America who were the first ones to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are black words. Do you hear me? Those are black people's words. We took them from them, and we made them mean something, like we did chitlins. They gave us guts. We made chitlins. They gave us those words. We put them alive. We gave those words life. White men don't understand that preamble like, we, like, like Prince Hall did. And that's the gift he gave us forever, and it's too bad we're not taught this more. It's too bad every child doesn't understand when they hear that preamble that it was a black man that was the first one that made it a gift to all of the people who now use it. All people, gay, straight, disabled, left, right, in America, Ho Chi Minh walking down um, uh, uh, the, the capital of, of Vietnam with the Declaration of Independence.
independence when they were seeking the, uh, independence after Dien Bien Phu, uh, Ho Chi Minh walking down the street with the Declaration of Independence, Ho Chi Minh and the, and the Vietnamese Revolution, they're inspired by the Declaration of Independence, but the Declaration of Independence didn't have any life until a black man gave it breath and put flesh and bones on the on the on the skeleton. They gave us the skeleton. We hold these two to be self evident that all men are created equal. And then Prince Hall came along and said, and now we're going to take this and put it in our hearts. And we're going our people are going to use this for the next three hundred years against y'all. We're going to use it more than you do. We're going to use it deeper than you do. We're going to use it in David Walker's appeal. We're going to use it in the writings of Phyllis Wheatley. We're going to use it in the, fourth, the 5th of July speech of Frederick Douglass, we're going to use it in Marcus Garvey's movement. We're going to use it in the assumptions around Jackie Robinson and uh, Joe, Joe Lewis and Wilma, Wilma Rudolph um, uh, uh, and the sister that was, uh, 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 you, know, uh, you know, just all of these important figures in terms of our sports. This is amazing that black people are the true disciples and the true sponsors of democracy. So when, when Sister Jones says in the 1619 Project, black America has a better way, that black America is better than white people in terms of race, I want to be clear. There's racist America and there's non-racist America now. After January 6th, January 6th is basically the new Missouri Compromise line. Just like Jefferson knew America would die, after 1820, it did... It did with the Civil War finally in the 1860s. So from the 1820s to the 1860s, the Missouri Compromise Line was the law of the land until 1857 when the Fugitive Slave, I'm sorry, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. But my point is Jefferson and and Madison said half-slave, half-free means no America. If you have a half-slave country and a half-free country, you have no country. Like you got two quarterbacks, you ain't got one. If you got a half-slave country, half-free country, you don't have one. Finally, the connection with us is if you have a half-racist America that voted for a white man who was BLs above in the Bible in terms of Whatever B.L.'s above was, I don't know what B.L.'s above was. I know B.L.'s above wasn't no person. B.L.'s above was a title of a demon. And, de- and Trump was a B.L.'s above. And the irony um, that is that, you know, our culture has sustained us. Our, our, our religions, our faiths, our songs, our music, our ancestors, our older black, our black women, our mothers. I mean, Miss Graham... One of the things that Soul Food tried to recover for us is this sense of the importance of the black matriarch in the black community, and people were trying to get to that, and they don't realize that Willie Brown said this recently in a speech when he was talking about London Breed. He said black people trust black women more than they trust anybody else. In, in terms of politics, and even as pastors, black women are better pastors than preachers are. Not better preachers, per se, but pastors, when it comes to meeting the nurturing needs of the congregation, statistically in social science research, women pastors are better for the congregation than male pastors are in terms of the social meeting the social needs of the people. And Willie Brown is saying that all these black women mayors, these black women representatives in Congress, they are an expression of black people's spiritual culture. We are saying to America, these are the best of our best. We're offering them up to you. And as you're sick and dying, we're offering you our mothers and our sisters who are trying to save you. 
and, and the sisters are offering themselves up, saying, we're tr- like Stacey Abrams, we're trying to save this situation. Tasha Brown is saying, we're trying to save America. Nobody, black people are clear. This ain't about Donald Trump only, and this ain't about no small thing. This ain't about January 6th. This is about the next 95 years of black people's presence in America. And if you're black and you're listening to me, you need to be involved in something that lays a foundation for the next 90 years of black people in America. I'm doing it right now. Ms. Graham is doing it right now. We're doing it. Somebody's listening, and somebody's going to be impacted, and they're going to keep this. Somebody's never going to forget that Prince Hall was the first one to apply the Declaration of Independence to people. And they're going to use that. And so I'm saying to you, your job is to do something in the name of Marcus Garvey. Do something in the name of Phyllis Wheatley. Do something in the name of Ella Baker. Do something in the name of Fannie Lou Hamer. Do something in the name of Angela Davis and Elaine Brown and Frederica Newton. Do something in the name of Alicia Garza and April Tomato. Do something in the name of Melina Abdullah, my friend and sister down in L.A., who's the head of Black Lives Matter. Everybody, all hands on deck. Our ancestors are calling us forward to save our people and save this country. The last time they had a devil like Donald Trump, we ended up in trouble for 90 years from 1876 to the 1960s. We did not recover from one election. And I'm here yelling and screaming and, and emoting and with passion because I want to set a fire under you and help you understand these are those times again. And the thing with Trump is not over. It's just taking a break. And we've got to fight it by November 22, 2022. But we've got to fight it now culturally. We've got to open up books. We've got to open up websites, we got to blog, we got to talk, we got to write, we got to teach, we got to preach, we got to heal. We got to, you know, reach out to our, our young people, our young people in the foster care system that feel like nobody loves them. Sister, why don't you do something in that front? I'm no good in foster care. I need help. Do foster care. Help us who don't do foster care. On make that your front. If you if you're about literacy, sister or brother, what if you can improve the life chances of a black child by helping them learn how to read by third grade? And what if you set up a literacy program in your living room with five kids with one book and you start there? And in 10 years, you got a college. Black people have always been these amazing, amazing jazz people, blues people. That's what Mary Baraka and, 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 um, and, uh, called us and, and James Cone. They called us blues people, and that means we, we, we know how to live with the blues. We know how to thrive with the blues. I think being black is blue. I think the blues is being black, and I think you can have the blues and not be black. The blues, you can be broke and have the blues and be any color, but the blues is still black, and black is the blues. And I'm saying to you that because we have the blues and because we are black, we are a people who have a lot to offer this country that is now in trouble spiritually. It is in trouble, and the only people who can save it are the non-whites, because the whites have ruined its democratic meaning, and they're actually campaigning to destroy its institutions. And if I sound like the angry militant, you are just like blaming me and deflecting. 
because I'm not the one at the Capitol trying to establish an all-white government and a white apartheid state. James Taylor is a political scientist trying to help you understand what just happened to you on January 6th. They tried to create an apartheid America and put your black behind back on the back of the bus. That's why we need all hands on deck. Ella Baker did not sit back. Fannie Lou Hamer was a black woman who was overweight, had all kind of medical and health issues, and she said she, she worked as a sharecropper. Oh, my God, we need Fannie Lou Hamer. We need her so bad right now. We need her because she was that woman, unlike King. She didn't represent the black bourgeoisie. She truly was the sharecropper. Uh, she was one of our grandparents. And she truly represented their thinking. So when Fannie Lou Hamer opens her mouth, that's your grandmama talking, sister. If your grandmama was a sharecropper, Fannie Lou Hamer speaks for all of our relatives who have ever been uh, um, um, sharecroppers. And then I'm saying to you that you have to tap into that culture. And you got to understand that white America has been lying to itself and to us all along about its claims to democracy. That's why Malcolm says very famously, um, in America, democracy is hypocrisy, he says. He says, if America is not hypocrisy, why are our people not free? If America is not hypocrisy, why are our people not, not free? And that's what Malcolm said. Malcolm, he understood that white democracy or the white rendition of democracy in America is racism. The black rendition of democracy in America is for all people, including non-blacks. And I said, we even love people that don't love us. I showed you an example how we politically cut our alliance with Jews in America over the Palestinian issue strategically because principally we were supportive of the oppressed the pedagogy of the oppressed or the wretched of the earth. So our wretched of the earth orientation with Fanon led us to support the Palestinians, not the Israelis, right, in the, in the 1960s. Because of who we were as a people, because we've been oppressed, we identified more with the Palestinians. Again, I understand that spiritually. I'm saying strategically it probably was not a good idea because no matter whether we put out a statement pro or con, um, it still wasn't going to change the fundamental condition of black people to be pro-Palestinian. You see my point? So it was a distraction, although I understand it's a principle that the movement wanted to convey, but is it the thing you need to do right now? Maybe we should be focusing more on black community development. And my point is black people have the bad habit of loving everybody else's cause. And, no, and if you think about it, who loves us back? What, 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 what racial group loves us back? Is there one race in America that loves black people as much as they hate them? Because all hate us. But does any love us? See, I don't know of anybody that loves us, but I know we love every group that don't love us. We love Jews. We love the Irish. We love white people in general. We love the police. Um, we, we, we love, um, you know, our white Christian brothers and sisters. Black people will love a cop that killed their son in the courtroom like Botham John. We'll love a white man that prays with us for three hours and then kills us in Charleston. We'll love a man, a white man with a gun who could have easily let my son not be paralyzed. But we'll love a white man who shoots my son in Kenosha seven times in the back at the, in front of his children and paralyze him. And before I sit down for my interview with Mr. Crump, my attorney, I forgive the white cop that shoots him and says he needs training. That's some black 
forgiveness that no white person has ever demonstrated. In fact, Ms. Graham, I sat here and watched last night the footage of the Black Panther Party as it related on YouTube to Fred Hampton, and they talked about the two New York police officers who were killed by some New York Panthers. One was black and one was white cop. The, uh, the white wife uh, was on the recording talking about the murder of her husband and the, fate, the parole of the brother who's still in, he's still in prison for 49 years from the Black Panther killing of NYPD. And the white woman sat there and said, I don't forgive him. I'm never going to forgive him. When he dies, his God, whatever God he believes in, their God can take care of them. That's a white person. A black person is the black people in Charleston Church forgave that devil, and that's what he was, a devil. He, they forgave that devil before their blood dried. The, same, the sun was still up, and the word went out to all black America, we forgive him. And half black people were angry, and the other half of y'all that go to church and that are Christian were like, well, Lord, I know, I understand. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what the Bible teaches, right? But how come we're the only ones that learned it? How come come the white man ain't learned to be forgiving? In all your black life, and you 75 years old, mama, you 72 years old, daddy, you 48 years old, uh, brother, and you ain't never in your black life seen a white man stand up at a press conference on CNN or Fox or MSNBC and say, I forgive the brother, the black man that shot my daughter, or I forgive the black man that robbed my house, or I forgive the black man that killed my police officer husband. You'll never see it because they don't have it in them. But I've given you five examples randomly that happened with us just in the Black Lives Matter movement. Martin Luther King's whole philosophy was around, um, you know, letting the racists kill us. King believed that we should love the racists even as he's killing us. That's how sick Martin Luther King's ideology was. That was ridiculous. I don't know what Martin Luther King was thinking. And that's why a lot of people rejected it. King believed in unmerited suffering was redemptive, meaning if the racist is killing you, love him to death. Now, I ain't got that kind of religion. I ain't got that kind of faith. I ain't got that kind of Bible. And I'm just saying to you, black people are expected to have that kind of deep faith. White people aren't. White people aren't expected to forgive. Why? Why aren't white people, when we do wrong in society, crime, or anything, why are, we, why are they not expected to forgive? And why do white people never forgive? But black people forgave in Botham John and in Charleston and in Kenosha. Why? It has something to do with the lack. It has something to do with the fact that the one thing white people have in common is racist culture. And that's the only culture they have left. So that's why they're expressing the, the, the culture we still have left. We're expressing in, in cultural forms. The culture they have left is racist culture. It's the only culture that they have together. And so now that their social order and you know, domination is in decline, the white group now is, um, is, you know, sort of resorting to accepting that they, um, they're in trouble. Um, and so, you know, I think today we, we, can, we can be proud and know that, um, that we came here with nothing um, and had some really amazing people emerge at very important times, critical people, men and women. And then they found white allies and other allies amongst the Indians and among sailors, like David Walker. His appeal was sent down to the South by white soldiers. So I'm acknowledging white people have been allies. But I'm saying in terms of the larger 
social milieu and reality, black people are the salvation of America. If America has any future left, it will only come when it shows the redemption and elevation of the Native American peoples and the black peoples. There is no salvation in America left with regard to white people. They can't find a new Silicon Valley. They're not going to find new – they'll find new technology because of, you know, because all of – you know, that's everybody, though. That's not white people. That's, you know, people from India and people from China are, are busy in, in the labs doing science. People in Africa are studying, doing science, right? Um, but in terms of the spiritual cultures and in terms of the maturity, the maturation, like maturing from racism to democracy, the white group in America is still immature compared to the black group. And nobody says that to you. But the white group to me is immature. They're childish on racism, and they need to grow up like us and be mature on democracy. So, you know, like with Masons, they believe in 33 degrees and 66 degrees. and I don't know all the details. I just know they believe that Christianity is like 33 degrees and Islam is something like 66 degrees or something like that. The point is that the white understanding of all things is underdeveloped because of racism. The black group's understanding of most things is spiritual and more mature because of their experiencing that racism. So black people now love others more than they probably ever would have had they never been slaves. But because they were oppressed and, have, and know the depths of being dehumanized, black people have a, a, a reflex against the dehumanization of others, which explains our position in Palestine, for example. Um, even though it wasn't politically smart, it was, it was spiritually who we are as a people. We believe that people should be treated right, even if it causes our political friends in America will say, we support the Palestinians, we support Mandela. Right? And that's, how, that's, how, and, and, and that's a, cult, a, a people that need to be admired. America spent 400 years niggerizing us and putting us down, making us unattractive to everybody else. Miss Graham, a perfect example is the Moynihan Report. The Moynihan Report that I know you know inside out from 1965 projected black women as pathology, black families as pathology. The solution to every black family was a man in every house. Um, and, and the reality is that now if you Google, there's an article out that says America had it all wrong on the family all along, that the black family, female-headed household, the matriarch form was the norm of America the nuclear family with a husband and a wife and two kids, Ozzie and Harriet, you know, Warden, um, June Cleaver, um, Fonzie, you know, the, the, the Cunninghams, that was unrealistic. What was realistic was more of a situation like Raisin in the Sun where it was mama raising two or three kids. You know, or, you know, or, or, you know, like Mad Men in the, the TV series Mad Men, that's unrealistic. This perfectly sanitized suburban life with a man and a woman, the man is the breadwinner, and his single income can sustain middle classdom. That, that whole sort of myth uh, was wrong. Miss Graham, the black family has always been looked down upon as a pathology, and now that white people are dying in 33 out of 50 states, Look at that right there. Look at that right there. They're dying in 33 out of 50 states. They mocked us for 50 years for having female-hatted households, no husbands, and large families. And guess who's now dying out and who ain't? They meant it for your bad. God meant it for your good. And that's why you're still standing and they're tearing the capital apart. That's who you are. 
You're basically the spiritual Jews of America as a black people. That's really who you really are. And that's the reality, that, the, you know, the black family had been pathologized, and they made us look bad, and they told us we were welfare recipients, and you heard Sean Hannity and Fox for 15 to 20 years harped on female-headed households and criminology and all of the, you know, James Q. Wilson and all these racist criminologists all harped on black crime because of the black family structure, black female, and this all comes out of the 65 report, and now in 2020 they're saying, oh, we white people are dying off, we were mistaken, that family model is why we're dying off. You know why black people ain't dying off in 33 out of 50 states? Because their mamas had large families. Because their mamas had sisters that helped them raise their families. Because two women living next door to each other would raise their eight or nine kids together. Or Miss Evans is around the corner with 15 kids. My mother's around the corner with nine kids. These two black families got 24 kids between them. They, 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 they become a, a, a thing in the community. And I'm saying to you, they, for 50 years they have been putting down the black family, and now they're saying the black family is the model of America's families that will survive. I don't know what more I can tell you black people than I've told you tonight. If you ain't full, if you don't have a better understanding, then I cannot do better than I have. I've poured out what I can to help you see clearly, hopefully, that you are the spiritual salt of this land. And that is not to disrespect the Native people. I completely respect them. I am on the Ohlone people's land here in Oakland where the Ohlone people dominated this. Uh, uh, they didn't dominate. The Ohlone people lived in this land for 3,000 years until the first white man showed up. The Ohlone people who were darker than me. The Ohlone people were dark Indians. They weren't light Indians. They were dark-skinned Indians. They were black-looking people. The Ohlone Indians dominated from Sacramento down to San, San, San Jose for 3,000 years. No rape, no war. And they live next to another group called the Miwok, M-I-W-O-K. Look it up on YouTube or Google. The Miwok and the Ohlone dominated and lived side by side here for 3,000 years. And then the first white man showed up, and it was over in 1776. 3,000 years from the time of the Roman Empire to the American Revolution. That's how long the Ohlone lived in the Bay Area in peace. And then the white man came. Immediately it was over. Same thing happened in Australia. Look it up. There's a book called um, Fatal Sure. Fatal Sure by a man named Richard Robert Hughes. Robert Hughes in the book Fatal Sure shows that the indigenous Australians who were black and who called themselves black, they do not call themselves aborigine over in Australia. They call themselves black like you do in relationship to the white people who came. And those people that were dumped off were Irish criminals. They were known as the convict tree, convict and R-Y, convict tree. They, they, so so, so I, when, when the white Irish were dropped off into Australia on the island amongst the aborigine, aborigine in Tasmania, the, uh, the aborigine uh, called themselves black, and they believe that they are the most contiguous society for 60,000 years, that when Australia pulled away from Africa, uh, you know, continentally, they just stayed on the land, and for 60,000 years. Now, now the, the amazing thing about the Federal Shore and about this is that the indigenous aborigine 
of Australia had many tribes like the American Native Indians had many different tribes. They were not all one group. They were very different people. But out of them, when the white man comes up from the, you know, the British dropped them off as criminals on Australia. So the whites in Australia and America were the criminal whites that would be, they were the criminal classes. And they dropped the Australian whites off. But Miss Graham, before that, the Indonesians, if you look at Australia, you'll see the map. Just on the other side is Indonesia. <clears throat> and the Aborigine and the Indonesians had 3,000 years of peace and trade between them. And just like in, the, uh, in Northern California with the Ohlone, as soon as the first white man showed up, it was over. 3,000 years of peace between Aborigine on Australia and, and, um, and, uh, and, and the Indonesians. But when the white man comes, the white man all of a sudden is slavery. From that moment on, it happened in 1787 in Australia. It happened in 1776 here in Northern California. When the white men showed up, 3,000 years of peace was destroyed. And they got you and me believing that rape and genocide was normal. That's how the white man justifies his evil here. He says that's normal. It's the wealth of nations. That's just the way countries are. People get raped. Countries get destroyed. Small tribes get eaten up and consumed. Yeah, but that didn't happen where the white man wasn't. Not, not in the modern era. Where the white man was is where the violence started. But as long as the, uh, the, the Ohlone and the Miwok were here, Miss Graham, the, the Miwok and the Ohlone don't even qualify for Indian gaming in India in California because they did not reduce themselves to being a tribe. In order to be able to get Indian gaming, you got to say, we were a tribe. And because the Ohlone's were only humans, humans, they refused to see themselves as a tribe. They were just humans. H-U-E, E. Put in the E. H-U-E-M-A-N. Look at that. Hue. Hugh, H-U-E, Hugh, man. Ain't that deep? Add the E. You don't, I can't prove it, Miss Graham, but I think some, some devil somewhere along the line dropped the E so we wouldn't realize the humans are the humans. So I'm going to stop there. And um, I don't know if we have time for, for any uh, phone calls, Miss Graham, but if not, um, I'll, I'll just wrap it up there and just hope that you, you've been blessed uh, to realize all these years they were putting us down. All, they were calling our families pathological. They were saying that our families were a bad form of family and you couldn't have middle class them and, and economic success in America with the matriarchal family. And now at the end of the 20th, uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, women are leading everything. Are leading women everything. are the, women the best hope America has. And, um, and we should be celebrating that black women are our mothers, our sisters, our lovers, our friends, our co-workers, our allies, black women are the beauty of this world. Black women are the blessing of this world. They are why we are who we are as a black people, and because of them, we're still standing. Because they knew how to adapt. They knew how to sew. They knew how to do patchwork. They knew how to take rags and tatters. They knew how to take chitlins and oxtail. They knew how to take hog mugs. They knew how to take anything the white man threw out. Our grandmothers and our ancestors, they, they said we can use that. And now, people, America has no kind of spiritual culture to tap into, but we still do. And the only way America can save itself is if it taps into our spiritual culture. That's the only hope it has left. Otherwise, what happened last week in January, last month in January, is the new Missouri Compromise Line. In 1820, the country 
was predicted to be uh, to, would would end because it was half slave, half free. And I'm bringing that full circle to end this conversation. It is very likely that in the next fifty, it is very likely that in the next fifty years, America will split up completely as a country, with the South being one region and then some reconfiguration of the rest. Because just like Jefferson predicted in 1820s and Adams that. That Missouri Compromise line is going to be the death of America, and it happened with the Civil War. I'm saying to you, when the Senate acted the way it did and did not impeach Trump in terms of removal and censor and punishing him and, and preventing him from running again, Trump and his people are already lining up Laura Trump. They're saying it's the future of the party. These pigs ain't going away. These people are clueless. They have no shame. They would, you would think they would be too embarrassed for what they did to America to even have their name mentioned again for fear of just general repudiation. But you know what? They know that only thing that matters in America is racism. So they offended the country and they didn't even get in trouble like they would have if that was black people that would have been world war three it was white people so it was nothing but a insurrection right and and that's the reality of america is is that um all the trumps have to do is just wait for america's racism to be what it is america's racism is its normal everyday um processes so these people are getting away with open crime because they know that white people have this race thing amongst each other. How does a white judge let this woman go to Mexico after she tried to overthrow the government? How does a judge give a white man uh, uh, organic food in a county jail, not prison, in county jail, because he took off his Viking uniform after taking over and leading the insurrection? Can you imagine them letting the nation of Islam like that? So, so the racism of the society, the racism of the judges, the racism of the Supreme Court, the racism of the Constitution, all the way down, Amy Coney Barrett, the racism that is in the system, it's like an email to all white people that all white people get. Y'all can act a fool. Y'all can cuss the police out. They ain't going to hit you. You can uh, get in Nancy Pelosi's face. Ain't nobody going to stop you. You can confront Mitt Romney at the airport. Ain't nobody going to bother you. You white. Go ahead, girl. You you want to take over the Capitol? Jump through the window, girl. You you go ahead. Pop. Okay, she got shot. But the rest of them, they figure they white. They can just take it over. It's because of their whiteness, and it's because of the whiteness of everybody in charge that nothing's happening. Miss Graham, please remember this. Donald Trump made new laws after the George Floyd protests in Washington, D.C. He increased felonies for property damage to punish black people and the white people who were allied with them in the Floyd, George Floyd protests. But you know what, Miss Graham? Even with Biden in charge, not one of these white people have been charged with one of the new laws that Donald Trump made for black people. That's why you cannot get me to sit here and be happy about Biden. Hey, I don't have nothing against Biden. I think he's a great man. I think Kamala is a great person. I think the system that they're operating in is demonic. The system ain't corrupt. Corruption is the system. And no matter how many good people we put in it, as long as it's the original racist system that they continue to rely on the default racism to get things done, 
It cannot live. So we as a black people have to kill the racist system in America. And just like we killed slavery, and just like we killed Jim Crow, I believe black people in the next 50 years are going to kill racist policing because they've already targeted it, and now their movement will, only, will mainly focus on it for the next 50 years. Just like we did Jim Crow, we didn't give up until we broke it. Now that we said defund the police, that's the, that's the, that's the rally cry of the black movement for the next 50 years. And at the end of that 50 years, it, black people will have figured out how to create a, 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 munis, a municipality and governing uh, bureaucracies that are um, less racist um, and less anti-black in the administration of law. And there are plenty of examples of countries that do that really well, and America will have to evolve to be that way because the browning of it and the, young, the, the country's getting younger, the baby boomers aging out, but the, 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 the immigrant groups that are coming in, especially Latinos, are very young, um, and it's getting browner. And the young people who are white are way more tolerant of socialism than any white group previously. So my students who I teach now are more supportive of socialism than any group of their generation in their age level previously. So, so there is still hope for change. But whatever it is, Ms. Graham, we are going to have to be a vanguard, not necessarily the, but a vanguard in it. We're going to have to play a major role because we cannot trust other people are going to give us a system that is just for us. So we need to be in all of the offices, all of the rooms. Those of you who are prosecutors, those of you who are prosecutors, I know i got at least one prosecutor listening to me. When y'all going to start getting right? Because y'all are the most unrighteous out of everybody. Y'all worse than the racist police. The prosecutors, you are worse than the racist police, and you get away with it because you hide behind your um, grand juries, and you hide behind your education and your law degree, and you think because you are Latina and now you putting rapists in prison who are hurting you know children. I, I love you for that, sister, but but you also in a system that is you know corrupt and doing real human damage to people. So what reforms are you doing inside of the prosecutor's office, people? See. This is the kind of specificity we need in our movements. If prosecute, look at what they did. Again, I'm, I'm only responding. I'm not teaching. I'm responding to what our people are doing. Look at this. Our people went after the prosecutor who was a Democrat who had his daddy shot by a black man, and he was a racist, um, uh, in, in Ferguson. Black people got rid of him, the DA in Ferguson, and he was a Democrat. Corey Bush was a part of that whole movement, and now she's in Congress. Look at Chicago. There was a Latina, one of these sold-out Latinas. There's a lot of sold-out Latinos and Latinas, a lot. And she was sold out. What did black folk do after the Laquan McDonald case? They got rid of her. Look at that. See, black people ain't playing with y'all, and y'all ain't, but people ain't paying attention to all the beautiful things black people are doing. I just showed you. Black people got rid of those folk. And then they went after the one in Baltimore. No, not in Baltimore, because Baltimore is a sister. She's doing the Lord's work. But there was one more prosecutor. I can't think off the top of my head. There was one more prosecutor probably here in California that, oh, yeah, it was. Jackie Lacey. Thank you. I talked my way into it. Jackie Lacey, a black woman. So, so black people, listen to this. Black people went after a, black, a white Democrat on their side, a Latina, allegedly on their side, and a black woman DA in L.A. whose husband pulled a gun out on, on Melina Abdullah. Jackie Lacey just got voted out because the Black Lives Matter movement strategically targeted all three of those prosecutors, except in uh, Ferguson, it was not Black Lives Matter, it was local Ferguson movement. So, 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 
So that is what we have to do, people. We need to be thinking about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the real problem because they're the ones who are waiting. Ms. Graham, it only takes one legal case to set us back at the back of the bus. That's all it will take. It took one case to get us out the back of the bus, didn't it? It just took one ruling to get us out the back of the bus. Brown v. Board. And Amy Coney has already refused to say in public whether she thought that was good law. They asked her, and she said, I can't talk about that. That's hypothetical. That's what she said. I knew she was a devil then. And she got that devil look that Malcolm talked about. She got that devil look in her eyes, and you know she do. She looked like she can't wait to send a brother. I'm using the word brother, but you know what I mean. She can't wait to send a brother up to prison or a sister up to prison. And as soon as she got in, what did she do? She co-signed on five black people being killed in, in the last uh, days of Donald Trump's administration. Right? Five black people, I think it was four black people and one white woman. Four black men and one white woman were killed by Trump before he left. He killed more people as a president than any previous president combined in terms of the death penalty. So, and he did it all in one week, right before he lost. And he did it and, uh, and, uh, and got, um, you know, and did, and, and did this in such a way that um, it had this impact. So, so I want to leave you with Prince Hall. I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you with the fact that the 1619 Project is right, and it doesn't matter what New York Times says about it now. It doesn't matter what white historian, historians say. If a white historian is on TV white-splaining the 1619 Project, tell him blues and jazz don't give a damn. We got our own thing, and we see it our way just like we do chitlins. And you can have your white version, but the black version is what gets people free. Your white version declared war so you could have more slavery. Black people took that same declaration and manifesto under Prince Hall and turned it into the most liberatory manifesto in black life. To the white man, the Declaration of Independence was a manifesto to keep slavery, to preserve slavery. As the rest of the world was moving away from slavery, the American Revolution was to keep slavery. The American Revolution, the genealogical line of the American Revolution runs from, uh, from George Washington to Jefferson Davis, not George Washington to Abraham Lincoln. The true heir of the American Revolution is the Confederacy, not the Union. So Abraham Lincoln, in order to remake America, has to kill the old racist America in the Confederacy and in the slaveholding framers. Because you have to ask yourself, if the framers were against slavery, then how does slavery survive the American Revolution and thrive 90 years after it? Because the framers were fighting to keep slavery after the British were beginning to manumit their people in Sierra Leone. And 5,000 blacks in America, that's what the Star Spangled Banner is all about. The Star Spangled Banner is all about black people fighting on the side of the British and getting beat. So when they say the home of the brave, the next word is victory over the slave. Because 5,000 of us said to the British, we'll fight for you if you get us free. So 5,000 blacks fought on the side of the British and became known as black loyalists, and 500 fought on the side of the racists, the American Revolution. Let me say that again. 5,000 black people fought for the British, 500 fought for the American Revolution. Who do you think was trying to get freedom and who was trying to preserve slavery? 
the fact that fifty that that ten times more black people fought for the British should tell you that there was something evil about what the American Revolution was. And all your life you were told it was great and good and justice. And I'm trying to help you see in black and white the American Revolution was to keep you in slavery longer. Women were free before the American Revolution. Women could vote before the American Revolution. In the thirteen colonies, women could vote. They didn't, but they could. They were not forbidden, but they could. They just didn't, customarily, but they could. Abigail Adams says, when the framers go to Philadelphia in 1787, be careful of the women, take care of the women, or we will rise up against you. Abigail Adams tells her husband that. And, and then when the men get to Philadelphia, they, they not only re-enslave blacks, because black people could have been freed by the American Revolution, but they negotiated it and made a three-fifths and electoral college. But they also took power away from women. Women lost power in the American Revolution because the American Revolution was a racist, conservative backlash, like Trump is a revolution, in that way. That's what the American Revolution was. Y'all got it upside down. I know you're having a hard time with this because you've been slavishly taught a different way. You've been taught that the American Revolution was about justice and equality, and I'm sitting here telling you, no, it's just the opposite. The American Revolution was about keeping your black behind in chains when the white man from Britain, who was in charge of America, began letting them go everywhere, creating new countries with black people being free. Haiti was on the verge of freedom. Sierra Leone had gotten freedom. America and Brazil were the last two countries to free their people. So America is actually raising up guns against the British, not because of the tea attacks, but because they wanted to take the black slave and let them free. See, the American white man always comes up with a convenient lie. They got you talking about the Boston Tea Party. The, Re- the American Revolution is really about black people's freedom. So when you hear the, when you hear the American um, uh, Declaration of Independence, it's singing about the 5,000 black people who lost in this war. When they say, uh, our star, uh, you know, oh, say, can you see that our, I can't get the rhythm right now. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? What they're saying is, we just beat these Negroes. That's what that song is saying. We just got finished whooping the slaves. Y'all don't understand that when Kaepernick exposed that all of this, what unintended consequences was, if you just read the third stanza, you'll see the only part of the song that nobody sings is the part that talks about slaves. And it rhymes with the word everybody stops on, the word brave. Keep singing, God. Keep singing. Next time you're in a room with a white, white person and you're the only black person and they're singing the national anthem and they get to the second stanza, just say, keep singing. And see if they, if they don't look at you like you're crazy because at the other end of that is the expose that the Star Spangled Banner is a song about victory over black people who fought against them to get their freedom. We, we were trying to get free. So I want to thank you all. Thank you, Ms. Graham. Thank you as an audience. Take notes. I hope you uh, come back next Thursday on Our Common Ground, where we'll be right back and we'll um, start off where we left off in finishing our series on black political history in the United States.
Thank you for joining us.